This is Writers Not Writing, the show where you can get to know your favorite writers and soon-to-be favorite writers by listening to them confess to the ways they procrastinate. Thanks for procrastinating with us. I'm Benjamin Gorman, and the quiet guy behind the glass there is Doug the producer. I write novels and collections of poetry and stuff. Doug tries his best to make me sound better. And each week we have a secret word to listen for. If you catch it, you earn the right to take an extra break at the time of your choosing from whatever is stressing you out. From Not A Pipe Publishing, welcome to Writers Not Writing. Today's secret word is body. Salutations, hail and well-met readers and reviewers. Welcome. I'm very excited to have our guest today. Uh, Marcella Stepradarte is not just an author, a colleague in that way, but uh, Marcella and I have been have known each other since before either of our first books were published uh, because uh, she's a teacher just like me and we worked in the same school district. So very excited to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. So for folks out there, Marcella Stepradarte has worked as a middle school educator for over 20 years, having achieved the honor of being named Educator of the Year twice. Her passion for writing has fueled her energy and compassion for leading her students by loving them into learning throughout the years. Her debut novel, The Hand of Fate, is now available in ebook and print versions at Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Leading with love is how she hopes to also nurture her readers through her work in The Hand of Fate, as the tale inspires readers to explore their own connection to the world around them and discover their potential for courage. So welcome. I'm very, very excited to have you here. So the first thing that we always have to establish is, you know, the people who are watching on YouTube can see these amazing costumes we are wearing, but the people who are listening on the podcast cannot see us. So tell all the podcast listeners what you're wearing today. Well... It's a, it's, you know, a cow onesie <laughs> and, and slippers because, you know, it's, it's Sunday. It's a lazy day. It's a uh, take a breath day. Excellent. Well, I, you know, because the hand of fate is inspired by Norse mythology, uh, you know, that, that, that it plays a prominent role in kind of the, the, the world you've created. I went with the full four costume and folks out there who are just listening, don't know this, but I am in the same physical shape as Thor, all those representations you've seen of Thor. I mean, I spend a good, you know, 20 to 30 hours a week in the gym to look like this. I, I see it. I see it. You can see it. it. And there. so yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I've just got the, the minimal armor, but no shirt on, you know, totally shaved and waxed and, and oiled. And I've got my hammer. Uh, I am going for the more traditional Thor, so I didn't shave my beard, but I do have the helmet with the uh, with the horns. So and long, long, luscious locks. Exactly. The blonde <laughs> locks. I mean, so if you are listening on the podcast, picture that uh, and as you are hearing my voice and just, you know, you can just imagine this. This is all coming from Thor, uh, you know, right into your ears. So, <laughs> Marcella, I've been uh, looking forward to having you on the show just to hear about what is how has this debut been going for you you've got this fantastic new novel that's just hitting the world i mean when did the book come out um the book uh officially came out i believe in the end of october yeah so this is very new and uh and how's that been going well you know it's a slow start but i'm learning a lot about the process and um started writing book two in this series and uh, this is a book that has a funny story. So during the time where there was a really popular author writing books about 
vampires and wolves. And I read the first one and I went, oh my gosh, she's got this great premise, but this is horrible. Like, yeah, I didn't yeah, like yeah. it. I'm sorry. I didn't. No, I, it's one of the few books I have ever like, like really written a, a, a review that trashed it. Most of the time, okay, if I don't like I, something, I didn't I say like nothing it. at all. But boy, those are and and the, you know they're 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 bad on the writing side. But you know you know people like different things in their writing. I can kind of forgive that. They're also really bad on the kind of gender politics side. Right. Uh, that's the thing I have such a hard time with. Is you know here is this this character and we're all following her and she's got no you know agency. She's only described as a klutz who needs to be rescued at every turn. And I'm like, uh, this is not a good message for my kids. This is terrible. Well, yeah. And and so I kept complaining and my oldest son said, like you could do better. And I looked at him and I go, yes, I can do better. And so I started thinking about this character and how and at the time I was taking a class on North Norse mythology so that kind of like there was this legend that they had not established whether it was true or not um about these vikings that had gotten iced in during the great you know continent division and um they prayed for help and loki is the only god that came to their rescue and um he made them like ice and their wolves which they had with them um, because wolves were the way for them to get to Valhalla, uh, they became um, became able to be human, so they could leave the ice and go bring food back, and you know help them and guide them. But in this book, they're at war because mm -hmm. that always happens, you know, centuries later, it always happens. So anyway, I, I wrote this book and I shoved it. I said, and I go, I told you I could do better. Yeah. And he goes, mom, this is really good. So he was, but that was years ago. And so it's been sitting on a shelf yep. forever. And I finally went, you know, I'm not getting any younger. I need to do this. So here I am. I figured might as well see how this does because I did say, yes, I can. Right. <laughs> well, good it. for you. I mean, yeah, I, I wrote six novels, depending on how you count, six or seven novels. One of them was so long that at one point I split it uh, in before my first one that I thought was ready to publish. Like, you know, I think readers out there don't know many, many years go into the, well, the, the work that we do in this. In this I wondered if the sum of gods that you wrote, if that was just out of spite. Yeah, no, mine that was, was out of spite. <laughs> yeah, no, mine was, uh, the, some of our gods, the, my first published novel was me kind of processing the pain of losing my religious faith and saying, how can I make that something that's funny for others? So it's, it is, you know, it was it, it underlying this, you know, comedy. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a satire is this, you know, it was, it was not a, people who have been part of a religious community and lost it. No, it is a real loss. Like I lost, you know, it I, really is a loss. Um, yeah. And so. And, you know, and then how could I, how could I turn that into something that, that was, was fun and funny for others? But that was my seventh book. Like there were, you know, there are these books that are sitting in files, uh, in some cases printed. I mean, it goes way back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. Before we had, yes, before we had everything on, I've got them on diskettes. Uh, I've, I found oh, some so do I. I have, a, I have so many zip drives with other books or yeah. things that I've started and I want to finish and, 
and all different genres like it goes the gambit you know yeah. depending well, on and, and good for you for saving it i mean there are there are, there's one of mine where i think that might be worth returning to but a lot of them were just books to learn on you know like oh, oh exactly where i, I want to be as a writer this is not good enough yet and so that that's you know kind of part of the process there's and, a uh, thriller how, how long did it take you to write hand of fate um, I would say it. Okay. So I thought I'm a thinker. So I think about it. I obsess over it. I dream about it. I think, think, think. And then I sit down and I write it in a weekend. Oh, wow. My draft is like done and, um, and I'll fly through it. I won't eat. I won't sleep. And then I'm good. I don't know if I can do that anymore though. Yeah, I might one be too old for that. One of the authors I've worked with Miko Azul, uh, who you would love uh, her, her uh, demons of Moralia books. So she's got a duology so far and I'm hoping continues them. But the first book she, uh, the staff of fire and bone, she worked on for 10 years, 10 years for one book. Like, and I think people out there, that, you know, they, they see our final product and they think, oh, this thing came about in no time flat. And they're used to forms of entertainment that come together more quickly. You know, if somebody's You're putting right. on a play, they put on a play for, they, they rehearse for months, but not 10 years, you know? And, uh, and so the, the, it is, it is an art form where a lot of well, work goes just, into it first. Just so you know, I wrote this when my oldest son is six, was 16. He's 32 now. Yeah. And it doesn't resemble that first draft right. hardly ever because right. I have like re, I think I probably have revised it like 20,000 times right. it feels like. Yeah. Um, and, and then I had to revise it again because um, when it was edited through the publisher, she didn't understand a lot of my poverty references. And mm. I, I kind of had to stop and talk to her. I go, you've never been poor, have you? Yeah. Um, and she goes, what do you mean? I go, everything in here I've lived. Yeah. This is poverty. And, and she goes, seriously? Yeah. Yes, seriously. I once went and, and saw a, a speaker who was talking about writing her YA novel. And afterwards in the kind of Q and a time, somebody got up and said, how do you, you know, how, how do you get to know young people so that you can write the the right kind of YA voice? I've not read this person's book, so I cannot speak to how accurately, uh, but she said, oh, I, you know, I, I've got a couple of nieces, but really I don't know any young people. And I was like, oh no, like you and I actually work every day, day in, day out yeah. with young people and so when we say this is the kind of this is the way my students speak this is the, the it's not just the way they speak these are their very real concerns that i can respect and and bring into a story rather than treating them like art teens weird and you know put them you know at, at arm's length but like no they're 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 dealing with very real things and and we yeah. can bring that into our work like I, she I even brought in advantage why would this character wear this to high school because it's all she has it's poverty yeah but she wears the same thing every day. And I go, yeah, I have yep, a lot of students of who are poor and wear the same thing every day. Yeah. Well, well and you know, folks outside of the, the, the kind of world of poverty don't understand the way our students mask, you know, and so I'll oh, hear, exactly. you know, hear people in the kind of, uh, you know, the, the, you know, middle and upper middle class people judging and saying, why is it that this kid who, you know, wears the same clothes every day uh, has a cell phone and how can they possibly afford that cell phone? And I have to say to them, that cell phone not only may not be connected to a plan, it may not work at all. It may be a broken cell phone the kid is holding so that they look like other kids. That happens. All and the time. This, this, this pretending 
to 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 mask and then you're looking at them from out the outside and judging and rather than judging we need to get to know people and find out what they're really dealing with is gonna it's so much bigger than uh than you know um i still have kids that are wearing masks because it's a comfort and it covers up acne because they don't have the ability to buy products to help them yeah or Or, they they feel badly about their teeth and they know my family cannot afford braces but i can wear a mask yeah. Yep. And um, so I, I had to educate the editor and she goes, I don't know if people are going to get this. And I go, poor people will. Yeah. Anybody who's had to live on government cheese or gone to a food bank, which is a lot of people. A lot and more people and, than and I told her, I go, I suggest you volunteer at a local food bank where you're at so you can um, get a get a new perspective. And she kind of went, oh, well, OK. Yeah. And she did it. And then oh, we had a really great conversation. I mean, a really great conversation. I go, those are the kids that are in my class. I see them all the time. I've bought dinners for families before and sent them along for the weekend because the child wasn't sure how they were going to feed their siblings while mom worked the night shift. Yeah. You know, and so I go, it's it's our reality as teachers. And sometimes we have to show up. Yeah. In in ways people I don't think understand how teachers have to show up. Like yeah. sometimes yeah, we'll a, a snow yeah. day and I'm like, yay, snow day, day off. And then it goes into two and it goes into three. And I'm going, and you know, some some people are saying, Yay, a third snow day or whatever. And I'm going, that means I've got kids who have not eaten for three days. We need to get back into school because some of my kids depend on well, that. and I always tell them I go, hey, send me an email if you need food or send me an email. I'll I check my um school email every day, even on the weekends, just in case. Yeah. Like I've had to go to a 7-Eleven to stand with a kid in the dark to wait for a police officer to come get them or a social worker because they're afraid and there was somebody staring at them you know and it's like sure i'll be there give me give me five minutes go inside (laughs) you know i mean there's just things we do because we love them yeah and and i'm also very cognizant that for every kid who says hey mr gorman do you have a snack for me there's another kid who is embarrassed to ask like there we put so much stigma around poverty that a lot of our students who are struggling with poverty are you know they finally get the money and they're going to invest it in those shoe overpriced shoes. They're going to invest it in the cell phone that doesn't even get to a plan so that they can hide. And, uh, and, and that's very real. And so, yeah, you know, I, 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 yeah, once we have, we have a different connection with our kids who are our readers than, than uh, most folks out there will, you know, will, will have access to because, you know, within our own lives, we live in our bubble, but our jobs put us into so many different. Oh yeah. And I've always found like whatever's happening in society, we are a social microcosm of what is going on out there in the school. Like we heard about um, the ice raids way before they started happening or hitting the news. We knew that our kids were losing family members way before anybody else out there knew because they were coming to school upset and not knowing who to turn to and school's safe place. I mean, like, I feel like we're a microcosm of society and every school you're in and you get the beauty, you get the ugly, you get the 
hope, you get the despair, you get it all. Yeah, absolutely. So not to change gears too, uh, too, too, too roughly, but uh, uh, show about procrastination. When you have been escaping from the, the, you know, the, the stuff that we deal with at school all the time, and when you've not been getting to your writing, uh, what has been getting, you know, drawing you away in terms of pop culture lately? Okay, in pop culture, um, so I was really busy and I miss Godzilla minus one and I'm really upset. I, ha- I cannot find it on the theater. No. You cannot. My I son mean, went. It's nowhere it's- and I am trying to find a copy anywhere and I think I'm going to have to just wait for it to stream and I'm really disappointed because I've watched all of them. Um, so I'm a big movie fan. I love going to the theater. Um, I love good movies and good storytelling. Um, I also, my husband and I are Reiki um, masters, we're practitioners, and so we're starting a Reiki business as for pain management, people with chronic pain. And we're also, we bought a loose leaf organic fair trade tea business. And so, yeah, what all, so how did the tea uh, business, how did you get into that? And what all does that entail? Well, the beautiful ladies who owned this house that we bought that has the business into it and already had a clean room and the tea business going on, they had to relocate very quickly to um, California. And so, um, they asked if we were, since we were going to do the Reiki business, if we were interested in buying their tea business, which already has established clientele. Wow. The whole shebang. And we're like, uh, yeah, okay. That's and, um, you know, and I already make candles. I make candles. And then we also, my husband's super into succulents, like almost obsession. He thinks they're the greatest plants ever. So we sell these cool arrangements like that. We can't ship those though, which is kind of a bummer. Candles we can. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we're we're starting that, but really I love watching movies. Um I love cooking. And um I also really 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 love playing like, you know, Scrabble or even, you know, any word game old school Milton Bradley right. word now, games. Here's the thing that's annoying though. So here I am the ELA teacher, right? And my husband is a puzzle person. His mind, he can map out an entire town in like five seconds, just looking at the map. He goes, okay, I know where I'm going. Doesn't need Google maps, nothing. Like he's a puzzle person. He is the only one who has ever beat me. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, beat me because he can puzzle the letters. Yeah, I might have a bigger vocabulary, but the man can puzzle. So I'm a terrible speller. And so I'm like, oh, I, I, you know, I've got this enormous, uh, you know, and completely superfluous vocabulary. Like (laughs) most, there are words that I know that no one needs, uh, but I don't know how to spell them correctly without looking them up. I tell my students all the time, use your tools. Like I'm grabbing a dictionary. Or or Uh, you're, you're tired and you're typing and you're like, how do I spell believe I before? Right. I know that I have written too long when I'm starting to misspell the. HT right. and then I'm second guessing myself and I'm looking at it and I'm going 
Is that right? Oh, it's right. 4.30 it's in the like, morning. I think I, I need to go to bed, to go to bed now. <laughs> I don't even know how to spell <laughs> three-letter words. <laughs> starts to look like it might be plausible. Okay, Ben. Yeah, okay, done. we're twinsies there. We're twinsies there. I'm telling you, like, there are times where I'll go, I'll go to a kid and I'll go, is that spelled right? And is they're like... Right? <laughs> yes. I can guess myself in the middle of a lesson. Yes, the, the computer has a red underline underneath it, and I'm not sure I agree. I I, I need to go to bed. I I'm done. Um, <laughs> when so, you start fighting with spell check, it's it's game over. <laughs> yes. So, but I'm I'm interested in this the the not just the Reiki business, but the the kind of practicing. How did you get into that originally? Okay, so my husband was um, is disabled, and he had had a heart attack. And when he fell, his back had already been, you know, bad. It blew out his entire lower back. Mm. But they couldn't fix his back because of his heart, and they couldn't fix his heart because, like, it was a a thing, you know. And so, basically, um, I'll be honest: our healthcare here is pretty much horrid. and they basically sent him home to die. He was in a wheelchair for about two years. And we, we get, there's got to be more. And I mean, and of course, depression hits in when you lose the ability to work and you lose the ability to really walk any distance whatsoever. And um, he decided, he goes, I have to either choose to die this way or I have to choose to live this way you know and we I had seen I had always wanted to um, pursue Reiki and so I said why don't you do this with me so I basically took him to the first certification classes kicking and screaming because he's like I can't do this I'm in a wheelchair I go yes you can and I go quit limiting yourself just give it a go if you and I've already told the instructor that if you don't like it or you don't feel it we're to he was dragging me after that first time because he actually felt immediate relief from the constant pain he's in. And, um, and then after that, we just did the next level and the next level, the next level. And um, he reikis constantly, but he is out of a wheelchair and he is amazing. He's still alive. And so we're like, we're like, it's worth, it's worth it for us. I have chronic pain too. And that was my hope is that I could do it without medication, handle my, my arthritis, chronic pain, because for me, it's just walking on knives. Like it's painful and, um, I can go all day. And right. usually at night, I'm I'm I've got some pain, but it's like not like it ever was before. Yeah, there so, was there was a time I thought I can't teach anymore. I can't do this yeah. anymore. I'm in too yeah. much pain. Well, and plus the job has changed. It really it is incredibly hard now. I heard an interesting statistic the other day that the so you know we, we we've heard for years that the average uh, kind of tenure of a teacher staying in the career is five years. Uh, and that was this stat that was tossed out. And that means that for everybody like us, you know, who's been in, how long have you been teaching now? Um, I think, uh, cause I taught in a private school prior. So I guess overall I'm like 25, 26, yeah. but yeah. like teaching public school, it's right. 21. So for everybody like us, who's been in for 20 years, there are four people who didn't last a year. Right. And so then you get that average of, of, of five. Well, now the average is three. 
Wow. Because so many of these young people are in these programs. They come into teaching for their first year when they didn't, you know, graduate from college yet. Some Somebody's so desperate that they're snapping them up and they're saying, you're a junior in college, but we need you to teach. And within a year, they're saying, I have not taken on a master's degree worth of debt. And this is insane. And so they say, forget it. I'm not doing this anymore. Uh, and, you know, I, I see it in my own district. We're, we're bringing people in where we're not giving them the support that they need. And we're saying, mm -hmm. we're just so desperate for you. We're putting you in a classroom with 30 children, you know, at the elementary level. And they are well burned out in a year. And the thing is, is, is um, the kids, we don't have readers. We don't have a generation of readers anymore. And um, what I find desperately horrifying about that is that's where kids learn humanity yeah. that's where poverty kids can equalize the playing field that's how um our kids that are marginalized can find their friends and can find their sanity and i i feel like no one's turning to books like they did before especially with our younger generations and and it's not that those books aren't available right it's it's that um their parents aren't either yeah. like it's not it's not in the home anymore as much as it used to be i love that all of my sons because i have many grandchildren i have number eight on the way oh congratulations excited. i love my grandbabies um you know how you get baby fever when oh, you're yeah. a grandparent it's like my baby fever is grandbaby fever now. Oh, yeah. It's like give me yeah, grandbabies. I, I have I have one child and I've told him he needs to have, you know, five children. So and, I, I I you know, I want to raise one and I want to have like five grandchildren. Well, uh, and he just kind of rolls his eyes and he's like, whatever, dad. Yeah, and my my <laughs> sons and my daughters in law, they read with their kids all the time. Yeah. I mean, I I'm so happy I instilled that in my sons. It's like we read every day, like every day. And um and I, I feel like there are young families going back to that because they see it too, yeah. you know, and they want their kids to have more than what they're seeing with some of our older adolescent children. And I feel like if we could, I always feel like if we could just get them, come on, get back to reading, get back to storytelling, get back to the arts, get back, you know, the things that are usually taken out of schools first is what our kids in yeah and well, I, I wonder yeah. too there was a piece in the 90s by of all people i i, I feel uncomfortable citing david brooks because he was the kind of token conservative for uh for the new york times and uh somebody that i i don't agree with very often but he uh wrote a piece in the 90s warning of what he described as the breaking of the missionary model and he said, look, you've been compensating teachers for, you know, the last hundred years based on respect, not pay, not anything else. You know, the, the, the model was always deeply, I mean, he didn't acknowledge us, but was always deeply sexist. It was, you know, uh, teachers will be single women. As soon as they get married, they have to get out of the profession. And so we don't need to pay them much. Uh, and if somebody is a, you know, spinster would have been the term they would have used. She can live on single single woman teacher pay. Right. And so we're not going to compensate these people like professionals, but we're going to afford people who go into the profession with this respect in the community because they're our local teacher. And if we lose that, then teachers are going to say, OK, then you have to pay me like someone who has a master's degree. 
And we, and he warned, if we're going to break that model, and if we take away this sense that being a teacher is giving to a community, being a teacher is, you know, is, is doing public service, then the model is going to be broken and either people won't do it anymore, or they're going to expect to be paid like any other professional. And it has taken 30 years from when he wrote that piece, but I think we are really seeing, and I, I look at my this, this younger generation of teachers, and they're saying, I expect to be paid, and I'm sick of people treating me like what I'm doing has no value. And you know, and not it's not the students. Like my our students are 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 lovely. Like I, I don't have a problem with the kids. It's that when you go home, there's no sense that the com broader community is saying teachers are are you know are the you know building democracy every day. Um, it's so and, true. Well, and here's the, the the other thing. So I I had gone to a. Uh, my husband and I had gone to, um, like it was a concert, but the person that had been talking, he, like he, he stopped and he goes, I want to, I want to shout out to all of the military, um, the police, the firefighters. And then he goes in the teachers because they're dying for our country too. And I just was like, okay, thank you. He didn't have to say anything more. Like, right. you know, everybody knew what he was talking about. Right. And, and he goes, um, he goes and shout out to the students who survive. And, and I just was like, dude, yes. Like, I, I just thought, okay, how to put it all in place in a way nobody was offended and everybody knew what he was referring to yep. and you will be shocked at who it was. Go oh, country, country star. Vanilla ice. Oh, really? Yeah, wow. we just went to the concert and it was like super fun. It was stupid. It had <laughs> Teenage Ninja Ninja Turtles and, you know, go Ninja, go Ninja, go. <laughs> it, was <laughs> it was great. But um, I was like, way to go, dude. Yeah. Okay. All right. I was like very pleasantly surprised because you would not have expected that. And no, I, was like, I would Ooh. not. I would not expect any kind of uh, deep political insight or sensitivity from <laughs> and, and then his, his big thing was he goes, hey, guys, um, don't listen to the politicians. We're America. You make your own decisions. Just don't just yeah. quit with the divide. Refuse to be divided refuse and he goes let's get back to the 90s now and then he he just moved on to another song and he did sing some country which i was like huh already then was a very shocking kind of concert yeah not what i expected so the um and and so i mean talk about pop culture you know going to see vanilla right. ice so uh so what about in the news what has been drawing your attention away from your work lately um i would say um I would, I have been reading up on, you know, our, the Israeli Pakistani issues, of course, and, and just seeing the extreme, um, kind of fervent sides of both and how people are supporting one or the other. Um, but what is still kind of pulling me, um, now is I have a couple, um, children i have a ukrainian refugee and then i have another student whose mother is um ukrainian but her father is russian yeah. and Most so i think, yeah. right and i have the inside scoop on this altercation still happening but now we're not hearing anything about it people are still dying buildings are still being bombed 
Um, Their family has had to flee um, the Ukraine and they had to basically try to get into Canada. Try. And um, they, they have, you know, their money, they have money, they have this, there's just nothing to buy. There's no coffee, there's no sugar, there's no salt, there's no flour, like there's nothing to buy. Um, and so they're trying to get as much goods over there. There's no medical supplies, there's no diapers, no bottles, no formula, you know, no nothing for them to even get. And so not only do you have to move at a minute's notice, like just leave if the bomb, you know, if the bombing is coming towards them, but then um, a lot of families have lost both parents, even some grandparents, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, because they have to fight in the Ukraine. And it is very scary. And every day this little girl gives me an update Hey, we finally got through to call, you know, a cousin or whatever. And here's what we found out, you know, like some things are better, some things are worse and yet no coverage. Right. There's nothing. The the story has ceased being interesting enough for American, you know, uh, attention spans, which is really, you know, frightening and sad because yeah, the, the, I mean, I, I, I try and think about from the perspective of a civilian on the ground in Ukraine, in Palestine, this, this thing has happened that you had no control over in, in Ukraine's case, a, you know, a, a dictator from across the border decides he owns your country and just invades in the Palestinian case, some terrorists that you had no contact with, no agreement with attack the, you know, the neighbor next door. And then the right wing uh, you know, politician there sees this as an opportunity to invade your country. And so what you're experiencing on the ground is very similar, whether it's, you know, in Ukraine or in, in Palestine. Right. Somebody's just, you know, blowing up the local hospital and blowing up the grocery store. And we don't think about, OK, well, you can't now get food. You can't get the medical attention you need. And people are absolutely, you know, dying of things that are so, so, you know, we would never even consider people dying, of, you know, just not having water. Right. Um, or like prescriptions, life-saving prescriptions or, um, that kind of thing. Um, I guess, uh, one of the relatives of the girl, um, he is diabetic. There is no insulin. So he cannot eat carbs. Like he's having to, he goes, luckily you, there's hardly anything to buy. So I'm doing okay. (laughs) You know, but I'm like, that is so sad to me that, um, to me, that is such a dictator way to advance through a country because you cut off food, you cut off this, you cut off that. It sounds very similar to another time in history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And it's been, uh, really, really frightening to watch who is willing to tolerate it. I remember, uh, you know, a U.S. senator's response to the Hamas attack was to say, well, we should, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't even know if he said that Israel should or if he implied that we should participate in turning Gaza into a parking lot. That was his phrasing. And I just, you know, he was talking about genocide and this was an American senator. Uh, and so it is it is very scary. And now there are people talking about, you know, hey, let, let's tacitly allow, uh, uh, you know, Putin to invade more countries. And I just think what what does that what does that say that we have become so callous? Uh, right. And, 
difference. And that's what I, I think that's what's pulling me, you know, like politically within the current events is just how divisive and how, I, I don't know. I have this theory that when we had um, that solar eclipse, you know, the one that only happens every, you know, mm-hmm. hundred so years that the native Americans believe that that is a time of unmasking. Everything that's been masked will now be revealed. And from that moment on, we have seen kind of the darkness in America, not only in the public, but within our politics. Like there are so many things that have been unmasked, whether you believe that or not, you know, it. the reality is that nobody, nobody should even wear a mask anymore. You should be transparent and truthful because this is the time of unmasking. Your words are going to reveal who you really are. Your actions are going to reveal who you really are and people will notice. And and it's just interesting to me how many people um, like within politics or even um, those in the public eye that always gave me the, you know, the like the heebie-jeebies are now like, oh, I was right in feeling that way about that person. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Unmask, totally unmask. And I'm like, ooh, not good. And I mean, all we have to do is kind of sit back and watch and um, put our alliance and our energy where we know we can make a difference. Right. Yeah. Which is, you know, I acknowledge very challenging. Like there are a lot of times where I'm like, and what can we possibly do about it? But yeah, it is it's, it's, it is a scary time of people revealing attitudes that have been there all along. I'm also I also have to be really uh, you know cognizant of the fact that there were people who were entirely aware of this. And, you know, I had a lot of privilege to not be aware. Right. And so it was yeah, you know, exactly friends, you know, people of color, uh, you know, women knew a lot more about the deep sexism in our society than I had to be aware of. And so some of this unmasking is it's really just unmasking for us. Like we're catching up with what uh, people around us were totally aware of for, you know, hundreds of years. <laughs> well, you know, I'm glad you said something like that, because I know that I took an anti-racist um, teaching class at Western Oregon University and um, because I, I needed to know more and I needed to know where where I had been conditioned, I guess. I wanted to know what exactly what my conditioning was. And, um, you know, because if you know more, you learn more, you have to do better. Yeah, I want to do better. So I took this class and we had to do so much self-reflection. And so coming from a foster home trauma childhood background, I felt more in line with my friends of color than I kind of did because we had similar stories, similar traumas, similar experiences, um, similar poverty. And so I felt because of my disadvantage, I didn't really have the privilege that a normal white person would have. And I was wrong. I mean, my attitude was, is that I didn't really have privilege because I I lived the same life you guys did. I did not. Upon self-reflection, I had to realize that even in the foster homes, I was given um, less of the icky work or chores. I was given leadership roles, even for um, kids of color that were older than me. I was given opportunities at school 
that they were not given. I was given um, respect and compassion, whereas they were not. And, and there were so many things that I had to really realize that I was believed when I told my story, they weren't always believed. Yeah. And once I went through this process of self-reflection and deeply looking at my privilege, even disadvantaged as I was looking at my privilege, I just sat there stunned and I'm like, I was conditioned not to see that. I was conditioned not to know I even had privilege. And yet here it was Which happening in front of me. Yeah. And I didn't recognize it because I was never taught to recognize it. And there, there, I mean, no, no, no shame in that, but that is the way privilege works, right? Privilege is oh. the privilege to not acknowledge your privilege. Right. And so, yeah. uh, you know, I, you know, I, how often did I think about the fact that I didn't have to look for a ramp to find my way into a building? Never because I had the privilege of being ambulatory. And you and not, don't until you're in a cast right? or until yeah. you have crutches. And so yeah, yeah. privilege is what we have the privilege to not see. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, it, it, so th this has been, uh, you know, a, a, a time of the unmasking is in many cases, just a time of kind of awakening to what the people around us were fully aware of. And the people with the most privilege and power were like, nobody knows this stuff. Well, nobody except the majority <laughs> right. are aware of it but the 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 you know a minority of us who had privilege and were able to go i don't have privilege i don't have power oh yeah i do i've got a lot and what well and then the other part of the unmasking is that it's also unmasking a lot of people's power um and they're and it's inciting them to i think make their move like, yeah. look at how many extraordinarily diverse women we now have in politics that never would have entered into politics had they not been, I guess, inspired to do so because of, you know, the situations that have been occurring politically. Um, and I, I don't want to get in the talk of president or any of that because- Oh, I'm fine with it. <laughs> well, you know, I, I feel like, um, one favor Trump did it, did for us was he made a lot of women really, really mad mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yep. and they rose to the occasion. How yep. many That's diverse funny. women of diversity rose to the occasion? Like we have more Native Americans, more um, Black Americans, more Hispanic American women, Latin American women that are now in political offices that come from very humble, normal, you know, backgrounds. And I'm like, you go girls. Right. And, it's like, and, and, we kind of have some. That. On the one hand, I'm like, it is wonderful that we have, uh, you know, people in power who are more representative of our actual population. That is wonderful. Right. On the other hand, we have a long, long history of saying, hey, Black women, save us from ourselves. And so I am leery. Uh, you know, I, I look at the the stats from, you know, the, the way people are polling. And I'm like, if this is another election where, uh, you know, white men and white women all say, th th this change is too scary for me and, uh, you know, are, are heavily favoring. And, and then those of us who are saying, no, I'm actually concerned about people of color are going, yay, thank you to the people of color who rescued us. 
from white people, like that's not great. Like we you know, need to be leaning on our fellow white people to say, it is not the responsibility of people of color to make sure that people of color can live safely in this society. What are we going to do to change ourselves so that we are not saying, oh yeah, I really like the guy who's threatening to put 10 million people in cattle cars. I, I kind of really, shit. yeah, I want the end of old white men ruling our country. I want the end of that. It, yeah. We need to be done. And we need to be done with that mentality and and that whole status quo. We have to change with the times. And I feel like the reason other countries, like even through education, through um, through uh, just not so much their politics, but how they're caring for the citizens of their country has become so much more, I think, communal. And we lack that here. I mean, and, and, that is and I mean, do we have great I, I communities? Agree, yeah. yeah. Do we I, have I saw great this great post that said my most radical uh, uh, socialist idea is that people should have food and housing. Right. Socialism. Like, you know, in the United States, we have gone so far to the right that saying people should be able to eat is now, you know, someone will yell socialist at you for saying, you know, our, the, when we're handing out granola bars in our classrooms. That's now considered wacky, far left socialism. And and we've had to do it for the fine. complete 20 some years. We've exactly. Been teaching. The things we are I, we have, one of the things yeah. I'm struck by is the stuff that I am teaching has not changed. And the way it is seen has changed dramatically. So I am still teaching about anti-racism and my certainly my vocabulary around that has improved because I've you know studied and I understand things better. But the, the basic concepts that I'm teaching about feminism and anti-racism have not changed in the last 20 years. And now people are opposed to it. And I'm well, like, what, well, you know, I'm teaching. You know, Bill I taught, I taught the book, Holocaust, right? you know, I'm a right. Holocaust educator as well. And, um, I, I taught that because I it was a great way to teach the roles of um I, I guess the different roles people take when it comes to when we're bullied by our own government, so to speak. You know, and I feel like um we have a lot of bystanders um and we have a lot of um collaborators of the tormentors and those collaborators um are often worse than the tormentors because the tormentors rely on them oh to God. get the job done you will this this uh, you know what our, i mean and careers, this is how our different careers kind of overlap have you heard about what happened with worldcon no so the world uh, worldcon is this giant science fiction convention that uh, that gives out the uh, the hugo award which is the biggest award you can win, one of the biggest awards you can win in, in, in sci the world of science fiction. And this last year, the uh, the award was going to be in, uh, it's given out in this very strange way where the committee of the city uh, that, that is the hosting place gets to decide who uh, is, is on the ballot, essentially. Uh, and that allows the larger organization to say, it's not our fault, that was, you know, this conference. But uh, the conference was being held in Chengdu, China. And the uh, Worldcon larger organization, kind of in collaboration with, but also uh, in in kind of getting ahead of the perceived censorship, said we're going to take the the following books by uh, uh, you know Chinese American authors off the list. We're going to take any book that we think maybe 
controversial in China. So it's got a reference to homosexuality or it references Taiwan as an independent country or anything like that. And we'll just remove those so that then the, no, no, the, no, you no, know, no, they no, give no, out the no. awards, they give the awards to some excellent books, like no knocking the books that won. But then when they release the data, it turns out there were all these fantastic books that were not eligible and they were declared ineligible, not by the Chinese government but by those collaborators you're talking about, people who are going out of their way to kind of get ahead of the perceived, you know, what might be censored. And I, I was reading about uh, people who are kind of, you know, tell us how to prepare for fascism and how to combat fascism. And kind of one of the hallmarks of anti-fascism is don't concede in advance, right? Because if you are trying to, figure out how to obey, you create a permission structure where you're saying to the, the oppressive government, hey, you could get away with this. This is another thing you could potentially get away with and I wouldn't stand up to it by trying to, you know, foresee, oh, what, what, what are they going to allow? And so it's, you know, how do we resist at every turn so that we're not ceding the ground to people who see, would... Here, here's, here's how I see it. If they all planned like teachers plan, they'd be okay. We have our plan A. Here's mm -hmm. the lesson plan as is. But then we also have a plan B, a plan C, and a plan D, depending on who's in class that day. Right. Or if we, you know, you know what I mean? And it's yeah. like, and um, I will stick with plan A until I'm told I can't. Well, but there, it's interesting <laughs> that this, this uh, same phenomena is happening in places like Florida, where they'll pass a law that says, you can't do anything, you know, you can't uh, talk about homosexuality in your classroom. And it's vague. And then teachers, again, will will compromise in advance. So they'll say, well, I'm not sure if this would constitute talking about homosexuality if I just teach this author who is a queer author. And so I will censor in advance. And this was saying, like, fight it, get get called out, you know, teach that author. And that way you don't allow the, the the danger of possible censorship to create a lot more censorship. And I thought that was really interesting. So one of my friends who lives in Florida, she is a um, wonderful woman of color and she has a beautiful family. And when they started banning books, she bought them all and put them in her house because she's like, hell no, they're going to tell me what my right. kids can read or can't read, you know? And I'm like, good for you. That's why I love you. Wow. <laughs> You know, but it's part of it too is um, I think, and I I know people might not want to hear this, but it starts at home. Yeah. Like if you censor your kids too much at home, oh, they're not ready for that. Are they not ready for it? Or are you not ready to have that discussion with them? Well, you're and, right. And, and you know what I mean? And it, and it's about, like, you know, if, if the kids start seeing parents are censors, they're far more likely to go and government should be censors. Like, the, you know, government becomes parent by extension. And so if we raise our children to say, my, my role in your life is to be somebody who is the, the you know, a, a, a provider and, and, you know, I, I empathize and I care for you and we are building a community and we come up with rules in this household together, 
that will be then the perception they have of how we should build community. And if instead it's, you know, the, the, the you know, I'm the one who hits you and I am the one who uh, tells you what you cannot read, they're going to go out into the world and go, that's government's job is to abuse its populace and, and prevent us from having, you know, literature. And so- Well, and part of that too, it's like, sure, age appropriate, you make available what you feel is age appropriate, but don't censor the hard topics because mm -hmm. your kids are capable of understanding more than what you think. And if you don't think they're exposed to that haphazardly through billboards oh my gosh. And media messages and Walking down the hall know, of the school they will hear all right of they're going to be exposed <laughs> to it shouldn't that conversation happen at home and shouldn't you talk about it and let them establish their where they stand on it and and it's like my so when when my sons got to the age where we had to have the talk you know the birds and the bees talk and I called it the birds and the birds and the bees and the bees and the birds and the bees talk because <laughs> yeah. I wanted them to make sure that if you are, I love you. It doesn't matter if you aren't gay. Like it, it's like I did it all. And I go, and you can't trust um, people if they say, oh, this is my first time. You know, you got to, you got to use protection. You got to do this. Right, you right, know? Right. Here's, here's what's going to happen. You know, it's going to be made available to you. I never, ever want you to feel like you can't ask me for help in that, you know, I don't need to know the details. All I need to know is that you're safe. You're keeping your partner safe, whoever they may be. That's it. That's all I need to know. And, you know, and it worked out really well. And the boys, <laughs> some of their friends were shocked. They're like, your mom said, what? Your mom oh, yeah. did what? But I wanted them to know you always have a home with me. You always have love. You always have connection, whatever it is. I mean, they're, they're all heterosexual, cisgender. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them goes, were you hoping for something else? Well, well I just wanted to leave the door open just right, in case, right. you know, yeah, my, like, my son and I laugh a lot. My, my, you know, partner, Crystal's always making fun of us for, you know, being the, you know, the two cishet white guys, you know, we'll just go. Yep. Yeah, but we know we're the worst like cishet white guys, you know, but, but you were right about, you know, learning to once we know better, we do better. And so, you know, very much with my son, it was, you know, the talk, the same thing. But then Crystal pointed out something to me that I had not thought of, which was, uh, you know, he goes off to college and he's, you know, we're like making sure, okay, you've got, you know, we're doing all the, the shopping beforehand. And so we're loading him up for his dorm room and we're like, you need to have condoms in your room. This is just a part of being an adult, you know? And then Crystal says, you should also have tampons in your room. And I was like, I would not have thought of that. Like, that's the kind of thing, you know, hey, you're going to have people over and you can be the guy who is sensitive to the fact that women have needs that you don't have. And you can be the person who's, and I was like, that's pretty cool. So now my son is the guy who's, you know, also got tampons in his dorm room. And that's cool. I'm very proud of the person he is becoming. Thanks to Crystal, not me, <laughs> you know. That is awesome. Yeah. Um, so one of the questions I always like to ask authors, just so folks can get to know you a little bit, is about kind of that, the the, the Rorschach that, that uh, some, you know, uh, well-known storytelling models and, and, and universes allow for us. So I always ask folks, if you were in a, uh, either a D&D &D world or like a Star Trek world, who would be your, what would be your, your race in that, in that world? And what does that reveal about? I can already tell you. Oh, I'm a Star Trek fan. And I'm, I'm sorry to say I don't really like Star Wars because it's not very well written and I kind of <laughs> have issues with it. But okay, is the idea great? Sure. But okay. 
write better, do better. All right. Anyway, that's my thing. I'm I'm not a Star Wars fan. My husband is though. So, but uh, he also yeah. appreciates Star Trek. So I would I would want to be Jean Luc Picard's daughter, and carry on in his footsteps. So I would I would be human, but I have to specifically be like his daughter or sister or something. Like I want the last name Picard. Just saying. Yeah. And my middle son, I wanted to name him Sean William Luke, so I could call him Sean Luke. Sean Luke, yes. Uh, and nice. and um, so everybody, and he was a preemie, and he was so tiny. He was like from you know here to here when yeah. he was born. Yeah. Go, That's such a long name. Why are you buckling him down? Finally, somebody realized what I was doing. I had snuck this by everybody. And they're like, you're naming him after Jean-Luc Picard. And I go, yeah, yeah. I kind of am. So I call him Sean William. And I still let Sean William Luke kind of fly through just because, you know. Did he, he was grow up to be a Star Trek fan himself? So for the tiniest baby, he had these two first names and then Luke in the middle, just so it's Sean Luke. Yeah. Did he yeah, grow up to be a Star Trek Is he and, a Star Trek oh, fan now? Is he a, is he a, No, but he yeah. does love he does love really good sci-fi and fantasy. Um he is an avid reader. He, he, he and I are a lot alike, but it's like my introverted side of me alike. Mm-hmm. You know what yep. I mean? Or my oldest son, my youngest son are more my extroverted side of me. Isn't it's like interesting? you're gonna see him. But uh he he kind of is he I mean he he thinks it's kind of stupid funny you know yeah. but I have a picture of him as a little preemie baby in a little Star Trek uniform oh, it was so, so awesome. cute I know I wish I had it I could show you yes was it before he had hair or was he born oh with- yeah no he was bald he oh, was perfect bald. yeah all oh, my babies so were perfect. bald it was like the, best the bald ever. baby it was that is- so great <laughs> so great oh that's wonderful <laughs> Okay, so we're going to go to our ad break, but when we get back from our ad break, I'm going to ask you what you've been daydreaming about lately. Special announcement time. Notify Publishing has always been committed to helping authors and readers find one another. Well, the show, which is all about helping readers get to know writers, just hit a milestone. 10,000 views on YouTube. So to celebrate, instead of charging authors to advertise their books on the show, I'm going to run your ads for free throughout 2024. If you want to make a 30 to 60 second video about your book, let folks know what it's about and where to find it. And don't forget your name and the title. Uh, I'll run one or two of those in our ad spot each week. Just send an MP4 file to the Pipe email address in the show notes. Let's fix up some readers and authors into reader relationships. 2024. More readers, more writers, more books. Hello, my name is Fred Gambino. I've worked in the story industry for four decades as a film and game concept artist and a book cover artist. My love of story has led me to write my debut novel, Dark Shepherd, to be published by Newcom Press in May 2024. A fast-paced science fiction action thriller, it opens on the beach, where starships are crashed from orbit in order to break them up. Breela is in charge of several giant dismantling machines, and her job is to further take apart the shattered ships. Semi-freelance, she is one of many teams who work the beach, making money on the load she collects and sends to central processing. But the beach is a difficult place. Subject to misogyny and racism, she is unjustly fired, setting up a sequence of events that leads to her fleeing across the galaxy in the company of a ragtag group of misfits, pursued by agents of the ruthless and politically powerful Church of Second Light, 
for secrets she didn't know she possessed. Only Brill can locate a mysterious rip, a wormhole that will leave humanity vulnerable to an ancient enemy, and only she stands a chance of closing it. Available for pre-order now at www.newcompress.co.uk An Accidental Hero, a mostly true Wombat story by Laura Rediger and Debbie Palin, is based on events during the aftermath of the Australian bushfires in 2020. Rescuers discovered animals sheltering in wombat burrows. Wombats were praised for providing a safe refuge underground. While they didn't invite other wildlife into their homes, they did truly become accidental heroes. The book is written as a newscast, with koala and emu at the news desk. Field reporter Kangaroo introduces readers to Wombat and her new friends. An Accidental Hero, a Mostly True Wombat Story by Laura Rediger and Debbie Palin. A STEM picture book published by Ifrig Publishing, available at ifrigpublishing.com or wherever books are sold. For more about the author, go to lauraredigerbooks.com. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, so, Marcella, what have you been daydreaming about lately? Okay, so I am working on the second book of my series. And so my ice demons in the book have qualities of ice. So I've been daydreaming about ice realms and ice castles and ice, ice, ice. And you know what keeps happening? You know that one scene in the old Superman when Christopher Reeves goes to the ice caves and that has the crystal? I keep seeing that scene in my head over and over again. And I'm like, that's not what I want. Knock it off. Yes. <laughs> Go back to what I need. So anyway, I've been thinking about ice a lot. It's like I'll look at ice in my cup and I'll be like, um, oh, I could have him do that. But the other thing is I had started a book. And it is an um, erotic thriller, um, kind of a, you know, whodunit kind of thing. And I kind of hit a wall of where to put the body. And um, and so I've been kind of daydreaming, like, if I put the body here, what would what would they do? Na, 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 na. So I randomly started talking about it with someone who wanted to know more about this book. And I went, <gasps> I know where to put the body now. So now I can like work on that book too, but now I'm visualizing, is that the right place for the body? Like where you put the body in a thriller is really important. Well, and also how soon in the text you reveal it. Like that's really, you know. Exactly. Say like, body on page one, a lot of, I have heard that as advice, you know, to get people hooked. Uh, so do you start with the body? Like that's, it's a, it's a tough call. Um, well, it's an erotic thriller, so I kind of started with sex. Well, that's and then, probably and then moved a into good bet body. for that. Yeah, I you think know, that's there a better you bet. You don't want to have, you yeah. know, buy this erotic thriller, thriller, and then the first thing is people are repulsed. Like, that's not that, you know. I, I know, and it's like, I'm kind of like, I don't know how to start this. But um, I've been thinking about this a lot. And now, and what's interesting is it's kind of, it's kind of cathartic in a way, because some of the abuses towards women in the book are things either I've experienced or through foster care met girls who have experienced it. So in a way, there's a darkness to it that may offend a lot of people, but it actually really happened to women I know. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's not a pleasant, it's not going to be a pleasant read and it's not a pleasant book to write. And I seriously hit a wall because I go, where do I put the body? 
you know, and I remember sitting at my desk and I'm I'm just staring at the screen going, and I, I yell, honey, should I leave the body in da 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 da? And my husband at the time was accepting a package at the door. So our <laughs> delivery guy heard his wife goes, where do I put the body? I think a dumpster's too cliche. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, and so go. it was really my, funny. My partner's a writer. This happens in our household. I <laughs> know. <laughs> he just said, it's okay. So this particular, this particular book, I often daydream about because I... I want to write it well for all of the women's stories that are entangled in it. And I want to write it well because there's some truths in it that are very dark and are a part of a lot of people's lives. And one of my favorite dancers, um, Shia Michelle Sorensen out of Utah, she said, there is beauty in the ugliness of being human. And there really is. And I really love that about her because she celebrates it in her dance. And some of the movements are very ugly and beautiful at the same time, Mm -hmm. especially when the theme that she's dancing for is humanity, like being more human. And I think that without our ugly, we can't, we can't find our beauty or the parts of us that are worth saving. And so this, this particular book, I do daydream about a lot because it's, it's a hard one. I still, am I done? No, it could be the one I work on for 10 years. I don't know. Right. Right. <laughs> but that's okay. So, which leads me to my next question. If folks want to find your work online and follow you so that they can be ready when in 10 years, that book drops, where would they find you? Well, I have a website and it is marcellastepardarte.com. And then also, um, I'm, you know, I, I do not have like a Facebook, but I definitely um, have a TikTok account that I've done some book videos on. And um, I'm hoping to, you know, be brave enough to like do more of that. Yeah. I, I I appreciate your videos because I'm like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. You know, and um, I have not <laughs> just mean that I'm setting the bar low, but that's a <laughs> hey, you know what? It's higher you than can do mine. it. You just so, put yeah, I'm in his face and talk. Then yeah. I'll have uh, more social media action happening. I just have to get brave enough. And um, the other part of it, but my website definitely will be updated, and it's yeah. definitely a great place to start. And um, where to locate me on social media as well, <laughs> as I finally figure that out. Yes, yes. So what do you have any recommendations for who else I should have on the show in terms of guests? Anybody come to mind for you? Okay, well, my friend Chalice actually invited a quite famous um, erotic romance writer to my first signing. And she is quite lovely. And her name is Victoria Nelson. Um, she has written a lot of books. In fact, um, she is quite popular in that genre. Yeah, I'm absolutely writing that. Victoria Nelson, is she local? She is, I think she must live in the same town, Cottage Grove. Oh, yeah. But she's in Seattle a lot. And Whoa. then another lovely writer oh, that, that, that is, is right here. 
it, right here in Salem, Tiff Reagan. So she has written um, two books. So the first one is Be Happy Bitch, and it is a self-help book. And um, for people kind of having some mental health or self-esteem issues, and I've actually gone through the book. It's absolutely beautiful. She did a beautiful job, but she also did a um, kind of teen version called Be Happy Babe. Mm. And um, what I love about it is I have used it with my LGBTQ plus club at school affinity group and the kids, we had some amazing conversations and really looked at self-esteem issues that our LGBTQ plus youth have that we wouldn't even be aware of, like um, having society negate who you are and negate how you feel the effect that that has on their self-esteem is tremendous and affects their mental health tremendously and this book was lovely because it offered um it really offered I feel conversation starters in fact I think any parents if they have a child who um is kind of dealing with lower self-esteem, get two workbooks, work, get, work through them together. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have conversations that really mean something to matter. I think Tiff Reagan is probably one of my favorite humans on earth. She's amazing. So she would be exceptional. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Well, I will absolutely reach out. So before we get to our final advice for folks going into their week, uh, there's some folks I need to thank. Thanks to the artist Max Oakland, who reached out and provided one of his songs for the intro to our show, I prefer, uh, his song, I Prefer the Dusk. And uh, let Max know you like it by following him on Twitter at Max Oakland with three Ds. Thanks to Halizna CCO for their song Kids for the ad break. Uh, if you're in a band and you'd like your song used on the show, I'd love to highlight a listener's work like Max's song, so email me about that. Thanks to Doug, the producer, for making this show sound good and taking the blame when it doesn't. Thank you, Doug. Always appreciated. And I cannot forget to mention Writers Not Writing is a production of Not A Pipe Publishing. So please go to notapipepublishing.com, check out the amazing books written by writers who didn't procrastinate too much. And there's a, uh, a code in the show notes for a discount at the Not A Pipe Publishing store too. So uh, listeners get a, a discount there. Um, and if you uh, have uh, you know enjoyed this show, give it a, a rating and review. We'd appreciate it. And please rate and review when you read a book by any author. Check out Marcella's book, Hand of Fate, and give it that fifth, you know, click that fifth star, give it a review, make her day. It really does make a big difference. So uh, now, uh, Marcella, what is something that you want the audience to think about and kind of take into the week with them? So the theme of this book is making connections and it's about love. It's about the love you feel for the people close to you. And this summer, my mother passed away. And one of the things I think that I reflected on that really meant a lot to me is that the only thing we can take with us is the love we have for others, the love we're given by others and the connections we make. So go out this week and make those connections to people you know, people you don't know. Take the time to share with the people you love how much you love them. You never know. And not only that, but it is truly the one thing that deserves our time and energy because it is the only thing that follows us when we're no longer here. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, and I, you know, completely agree. Uh, the only thing I would add to that is no matter how much you procrastinate this week, we're still proud of you. Thank you. My time.